Here at the Palace, I'm always on the lookout for old genre telly shows to view, and even in this era of streaming and such, you still can't beat old cable channels for a hidden gem, padding out the airtime in between commercials. Streaming services, unless they are niche markets like Twitch, don't seem to support a lot of old programming, being far more concerned with the shiny and the new, and as it becomes more and more difficult to find ageing genre shows, despite the preponderance of choice available to us, it becomes one of the few reasons to still have cable. We've seen Sky One dust off Babylon 5 for early morning screenings, and now the Horror Channel has found Sequest DSV hidden at the back of its vaults behind old film canisters of Lost in Space and the Invaders. Sequest DSV was hyped up massively back in the summer of 1993. A big-budget network show presented by Amblin Entertainment and starring a major movie actor was something to crow about back when movie moguls like Steven Spielberg and actors of the calibre of Roy Scheider didn't normally do telly. As with his earlier TV show, Amazing Stories, Spielberg used his clout to secure a decent 22-episode commitment for the show, and the network, NBC, were very confident in their new series. So confident that they placed it up against the juggernaut murder she wrote and the new dramedy Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman on a Sunday night. Over here, the big names associated with the series meant that there was a bidding war for the rights to show, with ITV securing said rights and the BBC settling for Lois and Clark. Both aired in the Saturday evening slot, with Sequest starting but a few weeks after its US launch, although British viewers had to wait until January for Lois and Clark. It had disappeared from the schedules by Christmas due to lacklustre ratings. By contrast, Lois and Clark proved immensely popular for the BBC and was arguably more popular here than in its native country. In waiting, the BBC got the far better deal. Sequest DSV started out with the best of intentions. Budgeted at $1.3 million per episode, the series had an impressive pedigree, being created by Rockney S. O'Bannon, who wrote Alien and would later create Farscape. The pilot boasted a feature film scope and was directed by Irving Kirshner of Robocop 2 and The Empire Strikes Back. To set it apart from other aquatic endeavours, Sequest DSV would deal with real scientific principles, and each of the season one episodes would end with oceanographer Dr. Bob Ballard explaining some of the scientific rationale behind the plots. In addition to Scheider as Captain Nathan Bridger, the large ensemble cast included Jonathan Brandis as Wesley Crusher wannabe Lucas Wallencheck, Stephanie Beecham, late of the Colbys and Dynasty, as Dr. Kristen Westphalen, erstwhile Lana Lang, Stacey Haydock as Lieutenant Commander Catherine Hitchcock, Don Franklin as Commander Jonathan Ford, John D. Aquino as Lieutenant Benjamin Krieg, Royce D. Applegate as Chief Manilo Crocker, Sam's brother Ted Raimi as Lieutenant Tim O'Neill, Marco Sanchez as Censor Chief Miguel Ortiz, and Frank Welker as the voice of Darwin the Dolphin. Of all the characters in the show, it was Darwin who came in for a lot of criticism, but it was actually quite an interesting idea. The show wanted to be edutainment, taking the idea of exploring the briny depths far more seriously than Owen Allen's 1960s effort, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. After all, 70% of our planet is water, and a lot of that remains unexplored. Sequest wanted to do for the seas what Star Trek did for space. It wasn't entirely successful. To get us all in the mood, here's the opening theme. 
Entitled To Be or Not To Be on the Internet Episode Guides, there is no other on-screen title on the pilot to Sequest DSV other than, well, Sequest DSV. As with most pilot films, the movie has to balance telling a story with setting up the world and the characters, and with a cast as large as this one, some are going to get short shrift. As such, the pilot focuses more on Nathan and who he is, painting the other characters in broad strokes, presumably with a view to filling them in later. The pilot is largely full of clichés. Nathan is a recluse after the death of his son and wife, and just wants to be left alone to live his life and play with his pet dolphin, Darwin. Of course, this cannot be allowed to stand, and Nathan is press-ganged back into service. The series takes place in the early 2020s, after a massive conflict has led to the Earth having exploited all its resources, except those located under the sea. To that end, mankind has started building underwater colonies and large submarines, one of which, the Sequest, was designed by Bridger. When the captain of the Sequest, former Charlie's Angel Shelley Hack, goes off the deep end, Bridger is forced to take command to save lives. The pilot movie for Sequest DSV straddles that peculiar place in the TV landscape, where television was finding its own feet as a medium instead of being cinema's embarrassing younger brother. Shows like Hill Street Blues had stretched narrative conventions, and NYPD Blue, Babylon 5, Buffy, The Sopranos, The X-Files, and even Sex and the City were just around the corner and about to change and influence television for the next decade. As such, Sequest, despite being a 90s series, feels very 1980s. The good guys are good guys, because that's what the network wants. The bad guys, likewise, are bad guys with no ambiguity. Shelley Hack's character, Marilyn Stark, is especially egregious in this regard. Why did she turn bad? What was her motivation for being a warmonger? Why does she disobey orders in the opening scenes, resulting in losing her command? Were there no indication she was a loose cannon back at the academy? Were Bridger, it's established later, was her teacher? Bridger is the only one given any character depth in the opener. He's a reclusive loner who worked on a top-secret military vessel and then took off due to a personal bereavement. The sensitive loner trope was old when Erwolf did it, and what elevates it here, as with Erwolf, is having a bona fide movie star in the title role. Roy Scheider brings class to the part. His easygoing charm and laid-back manner seems to rub off on everybody. Arguably, it's Scheider that makes the whole thing watchable. It's certainly not the supporting players, or the bad guys, all of whom come directly from the central casting folder marked Renta Baddie. The opening establishes that pirates still operate on the seas, or under the seas, as the case may be, and Sequest is there to keep the peace. Captain Stark has had enough of all this pussyfooting around and orders a nuclear strike, a move which ignores her own orders and forces her XO, Commander Ford, to relieve her of her command. Thirteen months later, Admiral Noyce, played by V's John Hurd, drops by Bridges Island with one task. Re-engage Bridges' interest in getting back in charge of the Sequest, now redesigned and refitted for this more peaceful age of scientific exploration. The problem with this is Noyce needs Ford to act incompetent to force Bridger to take over. This is, of course, all set up to introduce the supporting cast. Of the large ensemble, only Ford gets any substantial screen time, and Don Franklin portrays Ford as really conflicted when having to act like he's useless. And it does beg the question, why didn't Noyce just give command to Ford? He's a competent officer, a good commander, and, as we learned in the opening, a moral officer. There's no real need to recruit Bridger. 
Still, after Noyce exposits that the seas now have borders and territories and keeping the peace is all the more important after Stark nearly caused a nuclear war, Bridger agrees to go and look at the new Sequest, just to launch her on her maiden voyage as a PR exercise. Well, it's a PR exercise for Bridger. It's a recruitment drive for Admiral Noyce. The pilot film then slows down to a more cinematic pace, taking its time to introduce the political landscape of the show, the reason why the seas are now colonised, the rest of the supporting cast, and the massive sequest set. After Ford, who has the most screen time after Bridger, only Stephanie Beecham really makes an impression. And that's because she's Stephanie Beecham, and like Shida, can pretty much outact everyone else on the show without really trying. The Sequest itself is a massive vessel, the finest of her kind, and, like the Enterprise, a veritable city, but under the sea. She's equipped with everything a crew will need to explore and live under the waves. Of course, certain people don't want peace and harmony, after all, that's bad for business, and in this case, it's big bad Michael Parks, replete with terrible Euro-trash accent, playing industrialist Georges Lichen. He offers Stark a shit ton of money to take out the Sequest. And this seems to be Stark's entire motivation. Power, money and revenge. Now that's a fine motivation, if it's earned. Here it's superficial, and that's largely because the show isn't really interested in its main plot. It's all about setting up its characters and the world, which it does reasonably well. The problem with this is that half of the pilot is taken up with trying to convince Bridget to take command. Something we, as the audience, know he's going to do. So it feels like padding. Pilot episodes are difficult, and the best ones seem to be those that feel like just another episode. This strives to be cinematic, but at the end of the day, it's a pilot movie, not a movie movie, and it never really decides what it wants to be. Sequest DSV would struggle with this identity crisis throughout its entire run, but the problem is evident in the initial telefilm, which makes you wonder why the writers didn't regroup at some point and try and figure out what it was that was wrong. Sequest DSV desperately wants to be Star Trek, and it doesn't actually make a bad stab at that lofty goal, despite lacking Trek's optimism and humour. Production values are all pretty good, with the CG not looking terrible even now, and it does kick up a notch in its second half. Stark attacks an unarmed colony, and, predictably, the Sequest is the only boat in range. Ford follows his orders and acts hesitant and unsure, leaving Bridger no choice but to take command. I felt quite sorry for Ford here, and the performance really makes us feel for the character being forced to follow orders, all for the sake of bringing aboard a character who doesn't want to be there. Sadly, the CG is a little muddy in the underwater fight scenes, making it difficult to figure out what's happening. It's probably not a surprise to learn that what follows is one of those underwater cat-and-mouse chases we enjoyed in all those submarine movies we used to watch on Sunday afternoons as kids. Only this time there's an added dose of science fiction, as the Sequest has a hyper-reality probe and a secret weapon in Darwin, who plants a homing tracker on the pirate ship, allowing the Sequest to target the vessel and disable it. The pirate ship goes down, and Stark escapes to fight another day, although I don't believe she made another appearance on the show ever. Likewise, Lichen is set up as a recurring bad guy, but he too is never seen again. John Debney provides a pretty good score, although he clearly owes James Horner some residuals. That being said, James Horner probably owns a lot of his residuals to other composers, given that he was one of the greatest magpies in film composing history. There's a scene where the crew run around the sub doing important things that was a staple of every submarine movie ever made, including stealth submarine movies like Star Trek II. 
If you have the soundtrack, it's track two, Preparing for Battle. Give it a listen and tell me that that isn't Star Trek II's Battle in the Mutara Nebula. There's a view-screen-to-view-screen confrontation between Stark and Bridger, similar to that of Kirk and Khan. This scene is supposed to play as adversarial, but as we don't know anything about their relationship prior to this, it all falls a little flat. They can't even play up the rivalry like in Trek 2, as Bridger being here is dumb luck, not part of Stark's master plan or some revenge drama. It would have been much better had Stark held a grudge against Ford, who was the one who relieved her of her command at the beginning of the movie, a development we actually saw on screen. As it is, when the view screen to view screen tete-a-tete happens, Stark doesn't even mention Ford, despite him being stood right next to Bridger and visible to all. In another similarity to Star Trek II, Bridger only outsmarts Stark because he knows something about the sequest that Stark doesn't, and it even concludes similarly, with Bridger offering to accept Stark's surrender. I think you can guess how that goes. Bridger demonstrates his humanity by assisting the pirate sub's crew, and, now fully ensconced as the sequest commander, sequest is free to explore other avenues and adventures. Bridger reminds Ford that this little shootout isn't his idea of keeping the peace, setting up the show as a more thought-provoking than action-orientated. This viewing of the Sequest pilot was not unpleasant, and it's nowhere near the failure contemporary critics like Ken Tucker made it out to be. There is, however, a disconnect between what the show clearly wants to be and what network TV of the time will let it be. It wants to be a serious character-based drama with scientific principles at its heart, but network TV wants action and spectacle, so it's not difficult to see why Sequest struggled. Over the duration of the pilot, Bridger gains a surrogate son in Lucas, and his staying plays into the theme of being able to make a difference. I remember checking out a Sequest pretty early on as a teenager, but I feel far more receptive to it nowadays. Enough to check out the second episode, anyway. Entitled The Devil's Trench, Roscoe Lee Brown guest starred as a scientist investigating magma flows in underwater volcanoes. In a subplot, Darwin was injured after inhaling some toxic smoke. This episode felt more like what Sequest was striving to be. There was a strong scientific principle at the heart of the episode, the underwater volcano, and more emphasis placed on conservation and exploration. It's perfectly watchable, but I'm not sure there's a series here. Certainly not one that's 23 episodes long. Sure, the scene may cover a lot of the Earth's surface, and a lot of it may be uncharted, but fascinating as it is, it's finite. There's only so many places to go, unlike Star Trek, where space is infinite. Granted, I I wasn't aware that there even were underwater volcanoes like this below the sea, so if nothing else, I learned something. That's good, right? Treasure of the Mind features Topol as a scientist determined to keep the treasures of the Library of Alexandria together rather than separated by conflicting governments when said library is discovered intact at the bottom of the ocean. This was actually a pretty good show, demonstrating Bridges' discomfort at being a political mediator and introducing telepaths into Sequest's storyline, although very little is done with them. Bridger has a latent telepathic ability, something not followed up on, and Lucas has a massive crush on Hitchcock, but as she's played by Stacey Haydock, who can blame him? The early episodes continue the schizophrenia. Games focuses on Dr. Westphalen and has the Sequest rescue a warden and his only prisoner from an undersea cell. To no one's surprise, the warden is actually the prisoner, and he starts playing a deadly game with the Sequest crew when he gets a hold of a deadly toxin. This was another good one because it demonstrates that Sequest is cut off, more so than even the Enterprise, and trapping people in the limited environment can lead to some good drama. It's predictable, but a decent watch nevertheless. 
By contrast, Treasures of the Tonga Trench is both embarrassing and awful. Yafet Koto guest stars as a military commander who swings his dick around every chance he gets. This includes challenging Bridger to topless wrestling matches and squeezing each other's ass to ascertain who has the tighter buttocks. It is every bit as cringe-inducing as it sounds. It's not helped by the A-plot, in which Krieg discovers an undersea creature's shit is actually glowing stones that prove to be a valuable commodity. I'm not making this up, that the stones of the creature's poo is a revelatory part of the plot. Best avoided. Brothers and Sisters features Kelly Martin as the leader of a small band of children rescued by the Sequest. It's not bad, Martin is an engaging performer, but the kids are supremely uninteresting. Likewise, Give Me Liberté has the Sequest take on a rescue party of virus sufferers that contaminates Commander Ford and a few others. Dr. Westphalen must race against time to save the lives of the colonists and crew. Whilst a rather rote and predictable plot, there are good moments in this episode, not least Stacey Haydock's Lieutenant Hitchcock being given command of the Sequest and making a damn good job of it. However, this was the episode that solidified my overall thoughts about Sequest DSV. It's not good enough to be great, but it's not bad enough to be good. Rather, it's a waste of the time and talent of everyone involved. There's half of a decent cast here, grade A sets and production values, but a distinct lack of imagination to the writing. Every episode is rather slow and dull, with the pilot selling the series as an action-adventure show that the episodes themselves don't deliver on. It's a show constantly at war with itself. For a series to work, there has to be an element of fiction to the science, and Sequest wants so desperately to be science fact that it becomes a lecture. So the Sequest itself is considerably larger than any deep submergence vehicle of that configuration that we've ever had go to the depths established in the show, 22,000 feet. But the series glosses over that. Likewise, Darwin being able to talk is just on the edge of acceptable science, as dolphins do have rudimentary language skills, and a lot of what Darwin does can be achieved with trained military dolphins. This all fits into the show's remit. It wants to be science factual, but falls as an easy fix. Beards are not allowed on a submarine. They prevent a complete seal around the skin in the event of having to don a respirator, a regular risk on a submersible vehicle. One would have thought Bob Ballard would have pointed that out. Still, in its first season, Sequest isn't completely awful, and the science fact angle is quite novel. Certainly Dr. Ballard's end credit monologues are quite interesting, if nothing else. And let's be honest, for all of 90 Star Trek's boasting of adherence to real science, it spewed up techno-babble at every available opportunity. Only Babylon 5 really added proper science to its stories on a regular basis, and used them to its benefit. Sequest is in this area, but Babylon 5 also remembered to be entertaining. In fact, I think Babylon 5 may be why this viewing of Sequest isn't coming off that well. While Sequest has the better production values and the bigger budget, and in certain cases better actors, Babylon 5 scored higher in the areas that really matter. The writing and the characters. To that end, let's burn through the rest of these, shall we, with a look at some random episodes. Sea West is a western featuring David McCallum and some shoddy Australian accents. Knights of Shadow was Sequest's Halloween episode for that year, and was essentially a haunted house mystery. Sequest discovers an ancient wreck located nowhere near where it went down and investigates. What follows is a nice little ghost-slash-love story written well by author and Star Trek The Next Generation writer Melinda Snodgrass, and it's well played by the cast. It's an out-and-out fantasy episode, though. So much so that Bob Ballard struggles to come up with a real-world connection for his end-credit monologue. 
Nothing but the truth sees the Sequest taken over by a bunch of eco-terrorists when she's manned only by a skeleton crew, a plot that was done much better over on Star Trek The Next Generation. Roy Scheider literally video phones in his performance, leaving Hitchcock, Krieg and Ford to carry the day, a task they pull off admirably, and it's a nice opportunity for the supporting characters to shine. The ending was quite chilling for this show, although again, poor Dr Ballard struggles to make this science fact. One episode I was looking forward to immensely was Hide and Seek, featuring a guest turn from William Shatner. Sadly, this was the most boring sequest I've seen so far, with the normally reliable Shatner turning in the most somnambulistic performance I've ever seen him give. I did get roused from my tedium for one brief minute. Westphalen and her boyfriend are having a nice date when it is interrupted by incoming weapons fire from Erwolf. Not just a Bell 222 chopper making a guest appearance, no, actually Erwolf. The footage was stock from the Universal Library, with Erwolf chain guns blazing. When the most exciting part of your episode is stock footage from another show, I think you've got problems. Another episode I was greatly looking forward to was Abalon, as it featured a guest spot from Charlton Heston. Sadly, Heston is little more than a cameo, although his A-plot about a scientist who has developed a way for humans to breathe underwater is far more interesting than the frankly embarrassing B-plot in which Lucas pops off to have his first sexual encounter. His and Krieg's discussion about condoms was exactly as embarrassing as it sounds. The season finale, Higher Power, is weird. There's far too much time spent playing volleyball and establishing that with their tour of duty over, the crew are all being reassigned. This coincides with a worldwide holiday to celebrate the coming online of a hydroelectric power source that will provide electricity for the entire world for free. A remarkably altruistic notion that seems incredibly optimistic in the real 2019 as opposed to the fictional one of Sequest's reality. We all know, in real life, big corporations will never put people before profit. The hydroelectric plant is being run by Lucas's father, providing some daddy issues for the plot, and the rest of the characters all get some meat. Ford is being wooed by an aircraft carrier commander, Hitchcock has accepted a captaincy on a civilian tanker, Crocker is retiring, and Bridger and Westphalen have begun a relationship. All of this falls by the wayside when the hydroelectric plant discovers a magma flow that can only be sealed by dropping the sequest into it and exploding her armament. It's quite brave to end the season by destroying the sequest and leaving the crew scattered to the four winds, but apparently the producers didn't know if the series would return. The finale is lopsided, with all the character stuff being in the first half of the show and the action in the latter half, but it's a decent episode and shows what Sequest could have been. Overall, though, the show just kind of sits there, never really coming together. Adding credence to the idea that no one knew what Sequest was, the second season is completely different tonally to the first, becoming more like the aforementioned Irwin Allen series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, with time travel, aliens and other notions that do not fit the first season's remit. This caused Scheider to revolt, publicly panning the show in interviews and making it clear that he was here only because he was contractually obligated to be so. The producers slagged off Scheider for what he said, but he wasn't wrong. Sequest Season 2 is a very different show to Season 1. Not as different as Season 3, though, where Scheider finally got his wish and was replaced as the show leapt 10 years into the future. Sequest 2032 is as different again from Season 2 as Season 2 was from Season 1, and the inconsistent nature of the show plus the revolving door of actors, all three seasons have very different casts, led to audience apathy. 
Sequest DSV sunk without trace after its third and final season, remembered only by people like you and I, lovely listener, who have an interest in genre telly. Sequest never really floated as well as it may have. It had the budget, the crew and the talent, but it lacked heart, soul and a reason for being. Ultimately, Sequest DSV can best be summed up by a quote from Charles Baudelaire's poem Le Voyage. Into the depths of the unknown to find something new. Sequest DSV never found something new, be more like a soggy Star Trek, but it did dive to the depths, and at the very least it finally gave Roy Scheider his bigger boat. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover each issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo of Marvel's first family. And in 2019, we begin our journey through the neon decade, the 1980s. Join us as we cover... All-time classic runs from John Byrne and Walt Simonson. She-Hulk and Sharon Ventura join the Fantastic Four. The Invisible Girl No More, here comes The Invisible Woman. Spin-off series including Marvel 2-in-1 and The Thing. Marvel's Secret Wars, The Trial of Reed Richards and more. Find us at thefantasticast.com on iTunes and all other podcast services. The Fantasticast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Okay, let's have a look at some emails because we've got quite a few during the Christmas break. Happy 100 episodes boldly going where no podcast has gone before from Daniel Doherty. Hi, Andy. It's been a long time since I last wrote in, but I wanted to congratulate you on your 100th episode of The Palace of Glittering Delights. And it's always delightful when you talk Trek. I enjoyed your commentaries for The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before so much, I ended up listening to them twice in a row the day they each came out. Personally, though, I've always felt The Cage was a necessary failure for Gene Roddenberry. This Star Trek was a little too stiff and sterile for my liking. The same problem I have with The Next Generation and other spin-offs, but I digress. Outside of Pike, number one, Dr. Boyce and maybe Coach, you barely get to know the personality of the crew, let alone their names. I'm still convinced that if NBC had approved The Cage, Star Trek would have lasted only one season. It might have garnered a loyal cult following, but nothing close to having the size of it today. Of the two original pilots, I prefer Where No Man Has Gone Before. Unlike The Cage, the crew of this Enterprise felt like real, flesh-and-blood characters. Yes, Where No Man Has Gone Before has more pulpy action-adventure flavour to it, but people forget that it's just as cerebral as The Cage. In fact, when you think about it, both pilots have characters with fantastic mental powers, the Telosians and Gary Mitchell. The difference is how they're presented. For all the talk about The Cage supposedly being Roddenberry's favourite episode of the original series, and the way he always wanted Star Trek to be, everything feels incredibly over-explained. It's as though Roddenberry didn't trust the audience of the time to wrap their heads around the concept of telepathy, or the characters for that matter. Take the briefing room scene. Dr. Boyce literally spends five minutes going over the delusion's powers, and how they can't tell what's real and what isn't anymore. The blonde guy, uh, whose name I can't remember, is that Jose Tyler, basically said, yeah, but what if we use a really big cannon? When No Man Has Gone Before, on the other hand, talks about ESP like it's Tuesday. No over-explained exposition or gobbledygook techno-babble, another nitpick I have with Next Generation Era Trek. Looking at my chronometer, I think I've rambled on long enough. I didn't mean to sound so harsh when talking about the cage. I do love it. I just love When No Man Has Gone Before, just a little bit more. Until next time, may your dilithium crystals never fracture and always have a phaser by your side. I think it's fair comment, Dan, that, um, you know, there's a little bit of overwriting in the cage. But I, I honestly think, I honestly think Roddenberry's 
right in that instance. If you think about it, when that was made in 64, there hadn't been anything like that on television. He probably was just hedging his bets and trying to get it across to people who may not necessarily have uh, have an understanding of science fiction. You know, he, he may have been very right to do that. Um, well, I mean, we'll never know, because obviously the cage didn't go to series where No Man Has Gone Before did, and the world is much better for it. But obviously, Captain Pike is still an interesting character, and uh, I'm glad that we're going to get more of him in Discovery, which, uh, as of this recording, has not yet dropped its first episode, but the trailers look like it's going to be a much more bright and adventurous show, um, a la the original series. So, I hope that that's true. Thank you for emailing in. Shane Anderson has emailed in Palace of Glittering Delights, Star Trek, Voyager and a good episode though I would not be as hard on the characters and would pick a few different episodes from the various shows just to give my bona fides here when Voyager first heard I did not like it at all I did not care for any of the characters disliked Janeway, hated Neelix and thought the writing was vastly inferior to both The Next Generation and DS9 I watched the first two seasons and the occasional third season episode but largely gave up on the show after that but in recent years, I got in a mood to watch Star Trek and never seen most of seasons four through seven of Voyager. So I bought them on DVD and discovered that I really enjoyed the show. I've done a complete 180 degree turnaround. Yes, it's a flawed show, but it works for me now in a way that it did not work in the mid 90s. It improved as time went on, very much so. Uh, I'm going to interrupt Shane's email. Though. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. As, as of this recording, I am halfway through writing the next episode in that Voyager roadmap, uh, coming to the end of season four. Season four is a much more assured and, I wanted to use the word competent, but that's not right. Confident, that's the word I was looking for. A much more confident show than it was in its early seasons. And whilst it's not the show that they promised, it's found its own way, it's found its own feet. And I'm really warm into Janeway. Not so much Chakote, who's still as wooden as this table. Shane continues, For the first season, I'd skip Faces and watch Jetrell, an episode that made me reevaluate Neelix. Underneath that often annoyingly happy surface-level personality, Neelix is a very damaged and angry person, made so by losing a war and the devastation that weapons of mass destruction did to his family and planet. Like so many other characters on the show, I could not stand Neelix at first, but I think both he and Ethan Phillips are often underrated by fans. He's a good character, well played. State of Flux is a crucial first season episode that reveals Mackie crew member Seska as a traitor and sets up a running plotline in season two. Speaking of season two, the Tom Paris subplot is very much going somewhere. It plays out over maybe six episodes and involves Mackie Seska, who is revealed to be a Cardassian mole among Chakotay's Mackie crew. Persistence of Vision is a good mind-bending second season episode not written by Bran and Braga. Chakotay is a character who gets his best material in the first two seasons. It seems clear to me that he was set up to be the intermediary between the Starfleet and Maquis crew, and once that conflict was downplayed in the series, it really undercut Chakotay's entire purpose of being on the ship. Tom Paris really has an entire character wrapped up by the end of the pilot, and the writers struggle to find things for him to do as well. I look forward to future instalments as you continue to review the series. Shane from Greenville. Well, thank you, Shane. Thank you for emailing in. It's very much appreciated. Kyle Benning has emailed in next. See, I told you we got a lot over Christmas, which was nice. Typically when I wasn't recording something because I was having time off, I got loads of emails. Hey, Andy. Hey, Kyle. I hope you and the family had a great Christmas and are off to a pleasant start of the new year. It's been forever since I've written in leaving feedback for episodes whilst driving isn't really doable or advised. Come to think of it, I don't know if I've ever written into Palace or if it was just Hey Kids and Fantasticast, something that this email at least rectifies. 
I've been in a big Marvel mood lately, going back and reading or rereading some of the most epic runs in Marvel's rich history, thanks to the, well, epic collection trade paperbacks. Spider-Man has always been an enjoyable character for me, but one I take for granted. I wouldn't put him in my top five or maybe even top ten favourite Marvel characters, but he is definitely one of the most important, if not the single most important character in the Marvel U. Captain America is the moral compass of the Marvel Universe, but Spider-Man is its soul. That said, I've probably never read the title continuously for more than a year or two, but when I do pop back to check out the latest goings-on with Peter and the gang, I typically really enjoy it. Anyway, I'm gearing up for a reread of the Ditko era. Man, it's been years since I've revisited that fantastic period and wanted to be sure to catch all of Ditko's subplots and nuance this time round. So I gave your fantastic sub-series of Walloping Web Slingers a re-listen to prep my mind on what things to earmark and really look for in my reading. Man, those episodes are great and maybe some of the finest things you've ever produced, which is no small feat as I rank you as one of the best solo podcasters around. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. Well, I couldn't stop, though. After getting jazzed about the Ditko era, I kept on trucking through all of your Spidey content, and those episodes were equally enjoyable. Now that I've re-listened through all of the Spidey content of your feed for the second or third time, I'm left jonesing for more Leyland Spider-Man coverage. Any chance of more Spidey on the itinerary for 2019, by chance? Hope all is well. Your friend, Kyle Benning. <sighs> Kyle, you just know where it is, right? There's always going to be more Spider-Man, mate. Always. I do want to do the next batch of Ramita issues um, from the Omnibus and maybe just carry on through that as and when the mood takes me. I definitely want to cover the Spider-Man um, newspaper strips. I own all four volumes, or currently the four volumes that are out in hardcover now, thanks to my wife buying me over subsequent Christmases all the volumes. So I do want to cover them because there's some Lee Ditko material in there, Lee Ditko, Lee Ramita, sorry, material in there that doesn't seem to get a lot of love and although I've not read them properly in years, I'm looking forward to delving into them and seeing how the newspaper strip is different from the comic book strip. And also, it'd be nice to look back at some Stan stuff, given his recent passing. So yes, there's always room for Spider-Man. Thanks for emailing in. Uh, Treks Aplenty is from Chris Franklin. Hello, Andy. I greatly enjoyed your recent Treks on Where No Man Has Gone Before and your Best of Voyager episode. You and I have discussed Shatner's acting abilities before, and I do think the man gets too much guff from folks who just know him from Kevin Pollack's impersonation, and all the impersonations of that which followed. Sure, Shatner can glaze a ham like nobody's business when he wants to, but the man is a hell of an actor, and naturally charismatic. I've been in the room with the man, and he has a commanding presence that just comes naturally. His occasional steering into hammerness on later treks is possibly due to the hectic work schedule they had. Cranking episodes out like sausage doesn't allow a lot of time to think about delivery beforehand. One thing you pick up from Cushman's books is that Shatner had a lot of the show's weight put on his shoulders. Not making excuses for questionable acting choices, just trying to perhaps explain them. Interestingly, Chris, uh, they discussed this recently on Inglorious Trexperts, which is a podcast from Mark A. Altman. If you know that name, Altman used to write for Cine Fantastique back in the day, and he did all those great issues um, behind the scenes and reviews of Star Trek The Next Generation. And then he, he did his own magazine, Sci-Fi Universe, which was a brilliant magazine, sadly curtailed when it was sold out from under him. Uh, and after that, he abandoned journalism and went into television production. He now does Inglorious Trexperts, and they've been talking about that. 
And they were on about him and Nimai and how the third season of the show, Shatner has discussed that he went big because the quality of the scripts just weren't good anymore. So he was trying to just keep the audience engaged when there was less than stellar material for him to work with. And they, they contrast that with Nimoy, who they say, if you look at some of those third season scripts that he's not particularly engaged with, he's almost bored, whereas Shatner is at least attempting to still keep the audience entertained. Again, I don't know how much truth there is in that, but it certainly seems valid. Uh, Chris continues, I'm totally on board with your assessment of Nimoy in these pilots. Honestly, besides his makeup and strange appearance, there's very little of the Spock we know here. The nuance of his character, which Nimoy seemed to get a pretty good handle on, beginning with the Corbomite manoeuvre, is hard to find in either pilot. Roddenberry must have seen something in Nimoy to keep him on the show, despite network notes to the contrary. And of course, we are lucky he did. Because for whatever reason, Nimoy figured out the character of Spock, and in doing so gave us a unique race of beings and one of the best characters ever seen on television, period. Maybe it was getting a handle on what Shatner was bringing as Kirk that allowed Nimoy to find his quiet, introspective Spock. As for Voyager, I watched a lot of Voyager early on, mostly because our college town had very limited cable, and Voyager had a pretty good weekend time slot, so I caught most of the first several seasons as they aired. Little of it stands out to me now, so I guess that's a pretty solid damnation of its overall quality level, but there were bright spots. The Sulu episode is probably my favourite, which again doesn't say much about the show, does it? Looking forward to your thoughts on later seasons, which I'm less familiar with. Keep those palace lights shining, my friend, Chris. Well, thank you for emailing in, Chris. Always nice to hear from you. Uh, next, Luke Giaconetti's emailed in, because it's old home week. I should do more Star Trek shows, is the moral of this story. There's coffee in that nebula. Star Trek Voyager seasons one through three. Andy, when you first mentioned doing Star Trek Voyager on the palace, I was very excited, but then apprehensive. Excited because I have a lot of fond memories of Voyager, but apprehensive because I know pretty much everyone else does not. A little background. As I mentioned in a previous email, I only really got into The Next Generation at the end of its run. I missed the first season of DS9 almost entirely. So while I did watch the show, I always felt like I was missing something. So when Paramount announced a new Trek show when I was a freshman in high school, I was in whole hog, being very excited to see it from the beginning. I eagerly devoured Voyager, and it was appointment or VACR recorded viewing for me for years, essentially until I went off to college and time became scarce. But I always followed the show and its developments, and I even read most of the forgettable Marvel Paramount comic series and several of the novels. So I was glad to hear that several of the episodes met with your approval, and that you were continuing with the Roadwatch map of the series. As an aside, my mother often watched Voyager with me. She always loved how when Voyager launches from Deep Space Nine, the operating light came on over the saucer section, like a car turning on its headlights. Additionally, when my family first watched First Contact, both she and I cheered at the appearance of the EMH, to the confusion of my father and brother. I was amused by your statement that the Vidians are overused, while the roadmap seems to completely remove the Kazon, with the exception of Caretaker. The Kazon were the big bad of early Voyager, and appeared many times, including the season 2 finale, where Seska, a Cardassian double agent posing as Maquis, sells Voyager out to them, leaving the crew standard on a primitive planet in the two-parter Basics. Now I admit the Kazon were extremely overused and underbaked, but to remove them as well as the whole Seska art from the narrative seems a little too on the nose, a little too much of the internet fan think about the early seasons. As an aside, the first appearance of Vidians, Phage, is an early favourite of mine for the body horror aspects. Additionally, I found it funny that you said you'd forgotten that Neelix was on the show, and again the roadmap seems to do everything it can to remove Neelix from the narrative. 
I never understood the vitriolic dislike of Neelix, who typically brings a smile to my face, especially when he's interacting with Janeway. Now, Chakotay, yeah, a lot of wasted potential there in the early days with this character, no arguments. I'm sure my fandom is rose-coloured, but at the same time, I don't care. I watched the show when I was 14. It was my first trek from the launch. Janeway is still my favourite, and I'm still a fan. In any event, with the show on Netflix, I'm hoping to be able to take this Den of Geek roadmap and add some more episodes I remember being worthy and giving the series my own rewatch. And I will be sure to enjoy a big cup of steaming hot black coffee when I do. Looking forward to more updates from the Delta Quadrant. Luke, well, thank you very much, Luke. Yeah, Neelix isn't at all bad. Even in the raw, even as it continues into season four, again, Neelix-centred episodes seem to be few and far between. But when he has a scene that even is just comedic or comedy interlude, he's actually genuinely funny. You know, I've I've grown I've grown to really like Janeway. Kate Mulgrew occasionally is mannered in a performance that irritates slightly, but no less so than Shatner. Let's be honest. Um, and Neelix has grown on me as well, as has Tom Paris. I still think Harry Kim and Shakote are a waste of time. And nothing has really been done with those characters to make me change my mind on those two. But I have certainly warmed to Janeway, Neelix and Tom Paris. And I always liked Bellana. I think, I think Bellana was very, very great character. Uh, finally, Jason Tren has emailed in. Paris of Glittering Delights Voyager Roadmap. So the Voyager episode was popular. Greetings, Andy. Interested in you talking about Voyager. A show that frankly could have been something really interesting, but sadly the writing just wasn't there. Interestingly, the third Voyager novel actually went into the Voyager wandered into a massive war. Ragnarok also had an interesting twist as what the war was over, a disabled First Federation ship. Not a lot of the first season went on the list, but that novel, if you have it, is worth a read. Another thing I felt really was great was a purr of Badlands novel in that it explored the original series, The Next Generation, Voyager and DS9 in that order. It explored everything you found interesting about Voyager before they were whisked away by the caretaker and also covers Chakotay's ship. The Maquis part is interesting in how it literally has Starfleet and Cardassian spies on it, and I feel that was quite worth looking at. The entire Voyager selection of the Pur of novels was the best part of the four stories. Look forward to seeing more Voyager roadmap. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I haven't read any Voyager novels apart from the Peter David Borg one, where they actually kill Janeway. I don't know if that stuck, but, um, you know, see how the show goes. I may be interested after the fact. All right, thank you very much for joining me. That's it. There's more emails today than actual show. We apologise for people who find the email section boring. Uh, I'll be back next time with whatever rises to the top first. It may be the Voyager stuff. As I said last time, though, I'm not binging that. I'm taking my time with it and just enjoying it. It's nice to have a show. Well, you can do that. You can just put a show on and it's 46 minutes long and it gives you a beginning, middle and end and then it's over with and it's not, you know, part of an 11 part series like Teen Titans just was, which just launched on, on Netflix, and God, now I'm depressed having watched all of that, so Voyage was, was quite a nice cocktail. Uh, as usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation, uh, and if you want to email me, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is still the best way to get in touch for the show, and I'll see you next time, because everything is going to be alright.